Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The generosity of our members and friends is life-changing for young investigators, lung patients, and patient families. Donations made to the ATS will help to support our mission to fund emerging investigators in cutting-edge research, sustain education and public health initiatives, and reduce health disparities to advance worldwide respiratory health. If you would like to make a contribution to the ATS to help support our mission, please visit thoracic.org go slash donate. That's thoracic.org go slash donate. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Sachin Sud entitled Comparative Effectiveness of Protective Ventilation Strategies for Moderate and Severe ARDS, Network Meta-Analysis. I'm joined today by the lead author of the study, Dr. Sachin Sud, who is a staff intensivist at Trillium Health Partners, University of Toronto, and affiliate scientist at the Institute of Better Health. Welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thanks, Michael. Well, it's been over 20 years since the ARMA trial first demonstrated the benefits of low tidal volume ventilation. And low tidal volume ventilation is now taught to interns and medical students all across the world as one of the main strategies in critical care. Although it seems that we may often fall short on implementation, most intensivists agree with the benefit of low tidal volume ventilation. So what was your justification for the study? Uh, Well, Michael, since ARMA, several strategies, including high PEEP, prone ventilation, ECMO, and high-frequency oscillation have also been tested against low tidal volumes. And in some of these cases, they've been shown to be effective. So the real dilemma facing clinicians is not really a choice between low tidal volume ventilation and high tidal volume ventilation, but it's actually choosing between one of several possible strategies as an approach for caring for these patients with ARDS. Well, that's, a, that's a very good point. I think that uh, we've all faced that dilemma, especially as you had also mentioned in your introduction, especially now with COVID, where ventilation strategies for ARDS have kind of come to the forefront of clinical care. Uh, getting to your study, you performed a meta-analysis of 34 randomized trials, and you implemented a network meta-analysis as opposed to conventional pairwise meta-analysis. Can you explain what advantages your approach has over the traditional form of meta-analysis? Conventional meta-analyses typically compare an intervention and control, but in real life, there are usually multiple treatment options. A network meta-analysis compares and rates multiple interventions against each other using both direct data, for example, data from a randomized control trial comparing intervention A versus intervention B, but also indirect data derived from several randomized control trials that might compare intervention A and C as well as intervention B and C in order to make inferences about intervention A and B. I think you raise a really interesting point about how these are comparisons that physicians naturally do intuitively. And this is a great way of trying to form a more structured approach to uh, trying to make those inferences. I'm curious about how network analysis might be more susceptible to bias in those indirect comparisons. Michael, I think you raise a, a very important point In a network meta-analysis, not only do you have to be wary of all the potential sources of bias that can occur in a conventional meta-analysis with particular intention to methodological quality 
imprecision, heterogeneity, publication bias, but you also have some problems in network analyses that are unique to NMA. These would include intransitivity. And with intransitivity, we're really talking about whether in the indirect comparisons, trials are so different from each other in ways other than the interventions being tested that you really can't make inferences indirectly. For example, if you have uh, trials A versus B and B versus C, I think that it is intuitive that we would like the control groups, B, to be as similar as possible. If there are important effect modifiers that differ in these two pairs of trials, then our inferences of A versus C would be threatened. A second problem is incoherence. And this is a problem that occurs when there is actual conflict between the direct data and the indirect data. For example, if we have trials of A versus B, B versus C, and A versus C, we would have comparisons that could be generated directly of A and C, but also indirectly using trials of A versus B and B versus C. If these risk ratios or uh, effect estimates are significantly different between the direct and indirect data, we call that incoherence. Finally, a unique challenge in network analysis is how to incorporate the certainty of evidence, and by that I'm referring to the grade quality, uh, into the ranking procedure. Historically, many network meta-analyses would rank the interventions using a statistical process, for example, a statistical measure such as SUCRA to rank interventions, but this doesn't really take into account the methodological limitations of the study. For example, you could perform a network meta-analysis, and if you rank the interventions purely statistically, you may have an intervention come up on top where the studies that informed that ranking were actually of poor quality, and perhaps that intervention may look good statistically, but when you factor in the quality of the studies, uh, you're left thinking that maybe that shouldn't be the best intervention. So how did you and your group assess for the evidence for these network comparisons? Well, Michael, what we did is we used a new grade approach for network meta-analyses. Historically, network meta-analyses would use statistical procedures to rank interventions first, second, third, and so on. However, this approach didn't really factor in the certainty of evidence, uh, that is, the methodological quality of the studies. In the grade approach, uh, rather than try to rank interventions first, second, third, interventions are categorically classified into groups of being among the best, intermediately effective, and then least effective. After placing the interventions in categories based on their effectiveness, we then further subdivide them into those with high-grade certainty, meaning that we are confident in the rating, versus those with low-grade certainty, meaning that there is still some uncertainty and that further randomized control trials could impact these findings. So tell me, what, what did you find? What interventions seemed to offer the most benefit? Well, Michael, our main finding was that the combination of low-tidal volume ventilation plus prone positioning was more effective not only than low-tidal volume ventilation alone, but also the best strategy overall among all the strategies we tested. And this finding was associated with a high degree of certainty, and therefore we rated the combination of prone ventilation and low-tidal volume ventilation to be the best strategy overall. Venus ECMO was possibly among the best strategies, but there was considerable uncertainty due to the fact that VV ECMO trials only enrolled patients who were extremely ill with P to F ratios less than 75, as well as imprecision in the ECMO studies. As you will recall, the EOLIA study did not achieve statistical significance. 
Uh, and finally, methodological issues, for example, uh, the Caesar trial, which may have been influenced by referral bias, where patients were referred to an expert center uh, where the overall ARDS care was likely better than the care that was being received in the control arms. So you mentioned that the VV ECMO may have had some uncertainty due to sicker patients. How does the severity of ARDS affect the effect of the intervention? That's a very important point. I think first and foremost, we have to really look at the populations that were included across all the studies. Uh, In our network meta-analyses, the majority of patients actually had moderate or severe ARDS. So I think even the findings uh, with respect to proning, uh, low tidal volume ventilation, uh, high PEEP, really only apply to the moderate and severe spectrum of ARDS. Now, secondly, the trials, and there was only two of them, that randomized patients to VB ECMO enrolled only the sickest patients, typically with a P to F less than 75. I think then, when making inferences about ECMO, we should recognize, one, we're only talking about the sickest patients here. Um, And secondly, because the other trials, uh, looking at other interventions, did not enroll patients quite this sick, when we make indirect comparison to those studies, there's still some uncertainty due to intransitivity. You'll remember that we said that intransitivity is really how similar the trials other than the interventions being tested, and the patients in the ECMO trials were much thicker. Put another way, if you were to ask me about whether proning is superior to ECMO or ECMO is superior to proning, I think there's quite a bit of uncertainty there, and this is echoed by the very wide confidence intervals for relative risk ratios comparing proning and ECMO. However, the quality of evidence supporting proning is much higher than the quality of evidence supporting ECMO. So while there's a lot of uncertainty in extremely sick patients as to whether proning or ECMO is best, uh, we can definitively say that the data supporting proning at this point in time is stronger. Now, if additional data to support ECMO uh, becomes available, that certainly could impact uh, the findings of a network analysis such as ours. So one of the most controversial therapies for severe ARDS is VV ECMO. And the EOLIA trial, as you had mentioned earlier, had demonstrated no benefit to this therapy. Although a post hoc Bayesian analysis by Goliger and colleagues had suggested some benefit and your analysis had suggested there's a possibility uh, for a benefit. How should we interpret your findings on this potential benefit of VV ECMO for ARDS? Actually, empirical data from a prior systematic review shows that Bayesian and frequentist NMA typically arrive at very similar conclusions. This was also the case in our network meta-analysis, where we had a statistician check the result using a Bayesian network meta-analysis method with uninformed priors. I think the key here is that we went into this study without very strong priors, really with an open mind, you might say. And so I expect that a Bayesian and a frequentist approach probably would not have made a difference in terms of our main findings. What's probably more important is our use of the great approach to rate and rank the intervention of the network meta-analysis, not only statistically based on measures such as SUCRA, but also based on the certainty of evidence. You know, what refreshing part of your study that I found is that Bayesian analysis has become fashionable as of late, yet your group chose a frequentist analytic plan. What, what was the reason for this choice? Actually, empirical data from a prior systematic review uh, shows that Bayesian and frequentist uh, NMA typically arrive at very similar conclusions. This was also the case in our network meta-analysis, where we had a statistician check the result using a Bayesian 
network meta-analysis method with uninformed priors. I think the key here is that we went into this study without very strong priors, really with an open mind, you might say. And so I expect that a Bayesian and a frequentist approach probably would not have made a difference in terms of our main findings. What's probably more important is our use of the great approach to rate and rank the interventions of the network meta-analysis, not only statistically based on measures such as SUCRA, but also based on the certainty of evidence. I think that's an excellent point. I'm hoping that we see more of that in other future meta-analyses. Your group's analysis included studies that were collected over decades, and I'm curious whether or not changes in clinical practice might affect the validity of the conclusions drawn from those studies. Michael, I think this is a very important point. Certainly, practice changed over time, and the best example of this happening is what happened in the high PEEP studies. They evolved quite a bit from PEEP FIO2 tables to newer approaches such as staircase recruitment uh, and esophageal manometry uh, to set PEEP. There are newer approaches still being developed, such as the use of personalized PEEP uh, or lung ultrasound to assess recruitment. Uh, however, we did not address these in our study. Proning also became more common in control groups after the Gurin trial, uh, to the point where 90% of control patients in the EOLIA uh, received rescue proning. Now, in the case of the high PEEP trials, when we looked at this pairwise comparison, we found very little heterogeneity, suggesting the effects were similar regardless of which particular high PEEP method was used. A word of caution, however, uh, in a recent randomized control trial, the ART trial, uh, which used a very high PEEP uh, with an approach called staircase recruitment, there was actually an increase in 28-day mortality. So if anything, this particular approach should be avoided. So taking all this together, how should a practicing clinician apply your findings? For moderately severe ARDS, I think that prone ventilation combined with low tidal volumes is the best approach with a high degree of certainty based on this networking analysis. It makes sense, therefore, that clinicians use this as their initial approach. Uh, for patients who are very severely hypoxemic and who do not respond to prone ventilation, it would make sense to consider them for real venous ECMO if this is available, as we also found this to be possibly among the best strategies. In patients who are not candidates for either proning or ECMO, it would be reasonable to try a high PEEP approach. In our study, we found that the high PEEP approach was intermediately effective with a high degree of certainty. However, one important caveat here is to avoid the use of extremely aggressive PEEP or recruitment maneuvers, as was done in the ART study, uh, which actually showed an increase in 28-day mortality. We found no data to support the use of high-frequency oscillation. However, an interesting observation uh, was that in two studies in which mortality was actually increased, the oscillate study which looked at high-frequency oscillation, and the ARC study, which looked at high PEEP through staircase recruitment. These were both trials that used a very bold recruitment strategy resulting in highway, high airway pressures, and both of these studies showed an increase in mortality. This suggests that using very high PEEPs or high airway pressures for lung recruitment without considering the potential adverse effects on hemodynamics may in fact be self-defeating when caring for patients with ARDS. So I guess, in summary, our findings support using prone ventilation with low tidal volumes uh, as your initial study, and then moving to ECMO if that isn't working. Well, that's great, and I'm glad to see that that supports what many of us in practice think that we try to do. Uh, the big challenge here is actually making sure that we achieve that. So 
for all the practicing intensivists out there, do your best to prone and adhere to low tidal volume ventilation. I think this concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Sud, for an enlightening discussion on both network meta-analysis as well as ventilation strategies for severe ARDS. Thank you, Dr. Sud. Thanks, I really appreciate being a part of the podcast. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Thank you.